0: Cumberland Plateau, and the University of the South, this is the Suwannee Review Podcast. My guest today is Jay Perini, a giant to my mind in American letters, one of those rare talents that I like to call a writer in full. He has written too many books to list here, but he is a poet, a novelist, a screenwriter, a critic, a biographer, and a theologian. Can I call you a theologian? I like it. Why not? The author of, again among others, The Empire of Self, A Life of Gore Vidal, The Art of Subtraction, New and Selected Poems, the novel The Last Station, which was also an Academy Award-winning film, The Way of Jesus, Living a Spiritual and Ethical Life, and most recently, Borges and Me, An Encounter, we're going to discuss today. He is here in Sewanee to receive an honorary degree from the university. He is a great friend to the Review. Jay Perini, welcome to the Sewanee Review podcast.
1: Adam, thank you for uh, inviting me here to do this. A lot of fun to talk about this book. I thought
0: it would be best if right off the start, you explain to our listeners what this book is. You call it an encounter And I want to parse what you mean by that descriptor, but before we do, give us a basic summary of the book's events. What's this book about?
1: I call it autofiction. I was making a movie with Kevin Spacey in Italy in 2017. I spent four months on this south coast of Italy on the Amalfi Coast, where I used to live back in the mid-80s. That's where I met Gore Vidal. And this is a film about Gore Vidal based on my book, and I wrote the script with the director, Mike Hoffman. I had a great time. I was behind the camera for almost every single take, and Mike and I and the producer, Andy Patterson, would talk about it. And one day at lunchtime, sitting in a little cafe in a southern village and uh, just south of Amalfi, a visiting director his name was um ross clark turned up he was a friend of the producers and the director he just dropped in for a few days and we're sitting down kevin spacey sitting next to me andy patterson a couple of others and ross whom i'd never met pulled out of his briefcase he was looking for some papers that collected stories of borges and i said oh do you like borges he said do I like Borges? He said, he's practically the only writer I ever read. I read Borges over and over and over. He's my life. And I said, well, let me tell you a little story. I said, 50 years ago, when I was a graduate student in Scotland, my mentor, Alistair Reid, a Scottish poet and translator of Latin American literature, uh, said to me one day, uh, Jay Borges is coming. And I said, who's Borges? He said, ah, oh, who's Borges? He's a, he's a well-known Argentine writer. I said, oh, okay. And he said, listen, you have a car, Jay, don't you? I said, yes. And he said, listen, could you be Borges' chauffeur while he's here? You're gonna be here for about a week. I said, hmm? Why not? I had this old 1957 Morris Minor, which was a rust bucket. You could practically see the road underneath the car as you drove, because it was so many holes in the floor. And it kept dying on me. And I wondered about being a b- chauffeur for somebody in this car. And he also Alster said, I, "I warn you, he's completely blind, so it's going to be very awkward." And he's very fragile. He's 71, but he's going on 91. <laughs> I said, okay, okay. And uh, so Borges arrived. I'm telling the story to Ross Clark and Andy. And I said, I drove him around the highlands of Scotland for a few days. The car broke down. I was stuck there longer. I had adventures with Borges along the way. One night we had to sleep in the same bed in this godforsaken B&B and Killy Cranky up in the highlands, up in the Cairngorms. And I said, uh, and we eventually made our way with great difficulty back to St Andrews and I told the story of the book which is full of anecdotes and they all sat listening to me and Ross said, "Jay, that is my next movie." And Andy Patterson said, "I sign on right now as pro- <laughs> as producer. We're going to make this movie." And I said, "Well, let me just collect my thoughts. I never thought I've always thought of my time with Borges as a couple of anecdotes that are very funny. And I've been retelling three or four anecdotes for 50 years at dinner parties. And my wife's heard him too many times. She, she, she rolls her eyes when I go, let me tell you about Borges. So I went home to Vermont. We finished shooting a week later. And I went home and I said, well, I'll write 25 pages of memories. And before I knew what I had done, I would written 300 pages of memories. It just came rushing out of me how this period of my life was so formative I was, you know, running from the draft. I was frantic. I was a virgin looking to get laid. I just was completely a mess. I was taking tranquilizers. I was seeing a shrink. I didn't know where I was. I was trying to start my PhD thesis on an obscure Scottish poet who lived up on Orkney, and my directors of of my PhD thought it was a terrible idea. He said I should write about a dead poet, not one who was alive. So, my life was coming apart when when Borges arrived, and I drove him with Alistair down to the Carnegie Library, and then back to St. Andrews. There were three or four trips in there, which I've amalgamated into one trip in the book. And then, one day, Alistair said, we're going to take Borges up to an important meeting. He wants to meet some buddy, I've never heard of him, a Mr. Singleton in Inverness. Mr. Singleton is... is, uh, Editing a book of Anglo-Saxon riddles, and Borges is something of an expert on Anglo-Saxon riddles. I said, fine. And then the day we were heading off, Alistair had to rush off. He said, I've got a family emergency. Can you just drive Borges up to Inverness and back? I said, fine. Well, we took off, and we got as far as Inverness, really, and the car broke down outside of Inverness. And I was stuck there for a couple of days. And, and then Borges said, let's go on to see the, the battlefield of Culloden and, and do various things and all sorts of crazy things, which we can talk about, happened, anecdotes. And so this is the basic story. And I met some girl at a pub up in the Highlands who I took a fancy to, and she wanted to go with me over to Orkney. And Borges did not want to go to Orkney. He had fallen into some water, was in a very bad mood, so I went with the girl alone to Orkney. And so that's essentially the story. We got back to St. Andrews, and it was a most magical. I felt like we talked about the Vietnam War, my father, his father, war, politics. I got to know him, but mainly we talked about writing and literature. I was astonished by this man. On the way, I realized I was traveling with a genius. I had never heard of him before. (laughs) But I thought he was a genius. You know, the first night out, I said, what do you want to do, Borkers, in in the Highlands? He said, I want to go to a typical Scottish pub. (laughs) I said, you know what? You've come to the right place. So I pulled into this pub, sawdust floors, and I said, what will you have, Borkers? I said, let him in, blind man, sit him at the table. He said, get me a Scottish typical beer. So I brought him a, a, a pint of export and he stuck his finger in the pint and swirled it around and then <laughs> licked his fingers. And I was freaked out. I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to be here stuck traveling with this old blind man whom I've never heard of. And he's going to be horrible. And I said, so, Mr. Borges, no, mister, just call me Borges. Nobody uses mister. I said, OK, Borges. Um, Alistair tells me you're a writer. He said, oh, did Alistair say that? Alistair's always exaggerating. I said, so you're not really a writer? He said, oh, Jay, Jay. He said, may I call you Giuseppe? I said, if you want to. He said, you know, Giuseppe was a great Italian poet. And Giuseppe Parini, he was the Alexander Pope of Italy. I said, okay, I've never heard of him, but fine. Giuseppe, let me tell you, I write only these little tiny stories, one paragraph sometimes, three or four sentences sometimes. I be, became very dismissive. I said, so So, Borges, you're not really much of a, I said, how many, how many novels have you written, Borges? (laughs) Novels? None. So I'm very dismissive now. And I said, so did you never want to write a novel? Want, my dear boy, my whole life, I dreamed I would write the great novel of the Pampas and there would be gauchos and there would be prostitutes, lots of prostitutes. There would be patricide, matricide, fratricide generations, Giuseppe, would rise and fall, rise and fall, and it would be a thousand pages in length. <laughs> he, he said, one of those books, he said, if you take it with you on a trip, it should have little wheels and a handle. <laughs> and I said, really? And he said, yes. So what happened to this great book? I said, what happened? He said, well, one decade passed, then two, then three. But one day, Jay, I woke up and I wrote a 200-word review of this novel, and that satisfied the impulse.
0: <laughs> okay. So, what's amazing and hilarious is you're actually doing verbatim what is in the book itself, and you used a word that I think is very apropos for this conversation, which is amalgamation. All great books teach you how to read them.
1: mm mm-hmm.
0: And of course as you're reading this book a couple of interesting things happen which speaks to amalgamation which speaks to to putting together a whole series of stories as it were into something unified. There's first the announcement early on that there's, you know, a, a distinct point of telling, right? Mm-hmm. You're like, you know, in 1984 I believe is when you get news, I guess over the BBC that Borges has died. Mm-hmm. This is in the, the very beginning of the story, almost like the prologue and you know you're you're waking up early in vermont and you're thinking back to this to this magical encounter or series of encounters really that you had so that the book begins to announce itself as a kind of recollection and tranquility a straight memoir however immediately what becomes clear is that the book's like very sort of very similar bent in other words like this kind of recall of conversation is deploying very novelistic strategies i e there's a high element of high level of invention. Mm. I thought maybe you could talk a little about the blending, as it were, which is very Borgesian, Mm. between memoir, autofiction, essay in the book, and and basically how it was you came to marry these lines of attack, as it were, to get at this really set of encounters and, and unify it into one.
1: That's just a great question, and I want to give the best, most honest answer I can, as best I can. It's not simple. Basically, I had this series of anecdotes about Borges, which I'd been telling. My wife remembers that I told her uh, the story that I just told about the glass of beer, and Borges writing a review of this thing. She said, you told me that on our first date in 1978, 77, a few years after this happened. And she said, you told me most of the anecdotes in the book piecemeal over the next 50 years. And I had these anecdotes, and I wondered, but still, how do I make a book out of this? How do I make a unified narrative? I realized the fact is that because I've told these stories so many times, that one I just told, for example, I'm making up the dialogue out of whole cloth, basically. I vaguely remember what happened and what he said. I told these stories soon after the the events. And then I began to embellish them, f- create the dialogue. And um, it's true of all the anecdotes in the book. And I realized it at first I thought, maybe I'll just write this as a novel. And I wrote the whole thing out. I wrote the 300 pages of memory notes. Then I, th- then I went back and I said, well, listen, I'm going to make this clear that it's a novel. I'll call the guy Luke Palermo. Palermo was um, the village in the part of Buenos Aires with lips. I thought that would be funny. I called the guy Luke. I call, called myself Luke. But Alistair was Alistair. His son Jasper was a real kid. And many of the stories I tell, things Jasper said, are things I remembered him saying. The story of meeting Alistair in uh, the pub and him talking about his time with Robert Graves, that's all just exactly what happened. But I had to reconstruct what was said. I wasn't carrying a tape recorder. And then I realized... Throughout the whole book, I'm just making up dialogue based on what I can remember and the kind of things that were said to me. But it was 50 years ago. And I thought, well, how do I make a unified book out of all this? For example, I just told you earlier, one of the first little trips I took was with Alistair and Borges down to the Carnegie Library. And we went in there. And that was when it was closed, and the librarian let us in. And Borges announced that he was the national librarian of Argentina. I love that scene. The guy stiffens like he's he's,
0: he's encountered a general.
1: The general. He clicks his heels, and he lets us in. And what really happened, all I remember is that Borges asked me, where are the books? And I leaned him over, and he ran his fingers along. I knew it was a a row of books of Sir Walter Scott. And he plucked one of the volumes off the shelf, and he said, "Um, some books should be tasted, others devoured. And then he began licking the spine. And... The librarian said, please, sir, don't lick the books. Do not lick the books. And, uh, and that's the only bit of it I can remember. But um, again, in, the, in my autofiction, I removed Alistair from the story, for example. I didn't think it was useful to have him there. So that's the kind of fiction-making you're doing. I mean, fiction, as I say in my book somewhere, comes from the Latin word fictia, which means to shape and when you shape something, you're taking out certain elements and adding other elements. So I smoothed out the timeline. I turned what was really three journeys into one. And I slightly reordered the events where my car broke down and stuff. I think I added a night or two on the trip, mm-hmm. um, this kind of thing. You did. I did. So I, I added things and because I, I wanted to play out the narrative. I did have with me, I did have a friend who at that time was killed in the Vietnam War? When well, my best friend from high school was killed in the war. And I got news of my friend's death in a letter from his mother, but I got that news, I think it was maybe two weeks before Borges even arrived. Mm-hmm. And I was still suffering from it emotionally. And I told Borges about it, and he was very, very consoling to me. But it made sense dramatically to put that at the very end of the book mm-hmm. so when i come home from the trip with borges i get the letter which i actually had gotten two weeks earlier in real life so-called but you see so i'm shaping and i'm reordering events so i'm making a fiction out of this and i'm hoping readers just will go along with it because i call it auto fiction i'm pretty upfront in the in my afterword about what i'm doing i hope i'm upfront enough I'm trying to teach the reader how to read the book as I go along. Oh, 100%. And Jay, there's several interesting things that
0: immediately arise when you mm. describe the reshaping of this. The first one, which immediately occurs to me, is the danger sometimes of committing to the page the oft-repeated anecdote, which I think all writers and actors have at their disposal. mm mm-hmm can sometimes fall very flat on the page. I'm wondering, because you did such a good job of explaining like how you subsequently changed the book and reshaped it,
1: mm-hmm.
0: did you run into some of those problems as you were actually writing the book? Because then I, I do want to get into its tapestry.
1: Yeah, no, it was, it was the constant effort. I mean, because I'm such in real life, as you know, an anecdotalist. I mean, I'm a storyteller. And I tell the same stories over and over and over again. And it's very, very hard to make them live on the page the way they live in my conversation. But I've put a lot of effort into trying to think how to do this and how to make them work on the page and just read them over and over to myself so that I'm not missing something and so that I'm creating the drama on the page that I can create more easily, say, in conversation. So it was, it's, it's hard, it was hard, hard work. I mean, I really, really worked at it.
0: Did you find yourself, I mean, I'd love to know how you draft, how many drafts you do, what your process is, but did you find yourself returning to Borges's work amidst composition of this book?
1: Yeah, because I couldn't remember everything Borges said to me, and I wanted to make sure to give a total portrait of Borges. And it occurred to me almost in the beginning that this, I felt that Borges on our little trip was teaching me about Borges because he knew that I didn't know who Borges was. He knew I knew nothing of him, and I realized he was teaching me things about himself all the way along. He was alluding to his own work. And so I went back and reread much of Borges, and I mean, I've been reading Borges for 50 years. I know the work very, very well, practically by heart. And so I was able to think, okay, let's make sure that these various scenes, on some level, play with the same kind of symbolism and imagery and texture of, of of a typical Borges story. And so I made sure there were a lot of doubles. Borges was obsessed with doubles. And so I used doubles in the book. And I thought to myself, in my real life, do I have any doubles? Well, I remembered the story of crossing the quad in St. Andrews and meeting my old English professor. And he said, I say, you, come here, come here. I said, oh, yes, professor, what can I do for you? He said, is there any chance you would come and have tea with me next Wednesday? I said, sure. At my house. Lovely. He said, I there's a young man I want you to meet, an American. He writes poetry like you, and I think you would have a good conversation. I said, ooh. I said, what's his name, Professor? He said, his name is Jay Parini. <laughs> I said, but well, Professor, I'm Jay Parini. He said, oh, dear. He said, oh, well, he said, come anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and is he, is, he's, is he the same professor
0: who, as he sinks into dementia, then ends up rewriting all of Shakespeare? Thinking same he's one. Shakespeare?
1: His name was Alexander Faulkner. And he ended his days, I visited him in the mental asylum, where every day he wrote one of Shakespeare's sonnets, which he had by memory, and he thought he was Shakespeare.
0: I mean, that's... that, it's, it's that so is so Borgesian. A, that is, I was about to say, that's the most Borgesian thing I've ever heard.
1: I mean, it's, it's just Pierre Menard, author of The Quixote. Exactly. And, and so, I put in doubles, I put in lots of mirrors, there are mirrors everywhere in the book. I'm so glad you brought this up, because what I really realized
0: as I was reading the book was that the game of the book is that it's, it's just a series of braided motifs. There's just motif after motif after motif. And because you're such a great raconteur, what I thought I would do for the podcast is throw out some of these motifs, and then just hear how you sort of played with them. Hmm. So here's my favorite one in the book, which is the motif of the importance of cliche. Mm -hmm. Talk about cliche in the book, because Borges is actually a gigantic fan of cliche, but it seems to fit into his whole philosophy of storytelling in some ways, or how he's both for cliche and against cliche.
1: Well, it all has to do with his theory of what is literature. And literature for Borges was a tissue of illusion. There is no point of origin. We're just repeating cliches, stories that we have been told over and over and over again. And I thought the ideal way of talking about that, in many ways my own favorite moment in the book, because it really was something that stayed with me for for years, was on the way back into St. Andrew's in the car, Borges said to me, Jay, you keep telling me you're a poet, but you've never said one of your poems to me. Please, say one. And so I said, I was panicked. oh, my God, this guy's a real writer. So I took out my notebook, and I'd written this yearning love poem for this woman I was after. And uh, we were sitting in the car. we're actually pulled over to the side of the road, and I read this poem out loud in a very dramatic voice. But I said, it was in rough draft. And Bork, I said, oh, I love this poem. I love this poem. He said, I wrote the same poem. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, you know, you wrote something like it. He said, no, not not like it, Jay. I wrote the same poem, word for word. (laughs) I said, are you accusing me of plagiarism? He said, no, no, no. He said, literature is nothing but an act of piracy. And he said, I stole my poem from somebody else, and I repeated it word for word, and you stole this from me. I said, but I've never read you. And he said, you don't have to have read me. He said, it's in the nature of a classic that it reads you. You don't have to read it. And on and on like this, this mind-bending, I just remember having my mind whirled round and round. And I mean, what thing Borges explodes is the notion of originality. Mm -hmm. And and there's nothing original. My whole book is an act of literary piracy. I'm stealing anecdotes from Borges. I'm stealing, lots of times, sentences from his work. Absolutely. I just take them from his work, and I just steal them. And I put them in a fresh context. Labyrinths, for example, is another motif that I keep working with and playing with. And I can remember when we stopped at the Palace of Scone, where Macbeth was crowned on the way up into the highlands in Perthshire. There was a, a wonderful labyrinth in the garden, hedgerow labyrinth, and Borges and I went spinning around it. And Borges became up, was loving being in a labyrinth, and he was telling me all about labyrinths. And as we were coming, here's an example of how I played with this thing. As we were coming out of the labyrinth, and it was misty Scottish day, a one lady came up to us and started screaming at us. And Borges said, it's the Weird Sisters from Macbeth. Oh my God. <laughs> And so, I th- in, in writing this up again, I remember that. I just made it three sisters, like Macbeth, and I have them giving, Borges was obsessed with riddles as well. We were on our way to meet the master of riddles, Mr. Singleton in Inverness. I made up all these riddles that the young man supplants and so forth, the old man, all kinds of riddles that we listen to, and they are predictive in some ways for what's going on in the book. <music>
0: Our podcast is recorded in the William Ralston Listening Room, located inside DuPont Library at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee. This room is equipped with state-of-the-art audio components and over 30,000 recordings. Classes, listening sessions, and opera screenings are hosted by student curators throughout the school year. To visit or find out more about the Ralston Room, visit their website at library.sewanee.edu Ralston. Here's another one of the the great motifs in the book, which is, of course, the motif of mentors and mentorship. Mm -hmm. In fact, I thought what I would do is have you read this lovely scene where Alistair talks about his own menteeship, his own apprenticeship under Robert Graves, the great aggregator of myths and poet.
1: What did I really know of Graves? The name graced many paperbacks in the local bookstore and I had stood with a copy of The Greek Myths in my hand only a few weeks before. I had some ill-formed sense of Graves as one of those polymathic literary entrepreneurs that British culture throws up in a regular fashion. Was Alistair one of these? Read him carefully, especially the poems. Astonishing poems. Simple, musical, full of layers. He wrote novels to pay the bills. I, Claudius, King Jesus he added. He once said that he was breeding show dogs to support his cats. I guess that Alistair did not require a response. He was on a roll, exploring his own thoughts, allowing them to find a focus and form. I just happened to be standing next to him and listening. But I found him so appealing, a man who seemed more alive than anyone I'd met. His mind and language crackled. He knew people, interesting people. In talking, he was framing what he knew. I could learn from him, and I wanted him to want to know me. After the war, I wrote to Graves, Alistair said, as if beginning a short story. He was living in Majorca in a stone villa overlooking the sea, with his wife and his mistress and children. He sucked on a cigarette, almost swallowing it, then coughed profusely. Every day he would clamber down the rocky path to the sea and swim, a perfect life. I envy it already. Alistair approved of my empathetic powers, I could tell, as he nodded. You write poems, he asked. Miss Wright has let out the proverbial cat. Not good ones. Not yet. The right answer, he said. We're all living in the world of not yet. In my letter to Graves, I said I was trying to write poems, and that I was coming to Spain. Would he mind taking a look at them? It was impertinent. And that's good a young man with any self-respect should be impertinent. Did he reply? I mentioned that I had read classics at St. Andrews, and he wrote back to say he had just begun a translation of Suetonius for Penguin, Lies of the Twelve Caesars, one of the great works of fiction. Isn't it history? History is a form of fiction. You must shape the facts, find an arrangement among them, create a satisfying narrative. He lifted the pint and Drained whatever was left, Graves offered me a job as his secretary. I was to provide a rough translation from the Latin, do the donkey work. He would refine whatever I produced. He said I could have a little hut in his garden to live in. How could I turn down such an offer? He looked beyond me again, his eyes fixed on the high corner of the room. Graves was badly injured in the Great War. His nerves shattered, so this was ideal for him. A peaceful limestone valley, pine trees, rosemary, a village by the sea. A good place for nerves to settle. I thought of my own bad nerves and the quest for them to settle. Well, my own nerves settled at first, said Alistair, but graves ruined my composure soon enough. A long story. His pause spoke volumes. He was a good teacher, I assume, I said. I learned to write from Graves by sitting beside him, allowing him to correct me, as he put it. I remember the first week, when he gave me a few pages to translate. I worked intensely for hours, making what I thought was a perfect English version, and put the pages on his desk before dinner, standing beside him. He scanned them quickly and said, "'Sit!' I pulled up a chair. Then I watched." as he crossed out sentences with his fountain pen, or circled them to move them to another place. He crossed out adjectives but found better nouns, ones that didn't need propping up with modifiers. The same with my adverbs, which got swallowed into better verbs. If you need an adjective or adverb, you're still fishing for the right noun or verb. So Graves said, I learned this, but learning hurts. It's a Ripping away something that had fit easily, that felt comfortable. All passive constructions disappeared. Always prefer the active voice, he barked at me in that fucking public school manner. Elementary but useful advice. You must learn how to pare down your work, then build it up. Vision and revision. You prune a rose bush back to its roots. Then it flowers properly. He paused. Are you a gardener? No that's too bad, he said. You must take it up. That was fantastic. So
0: discuss the theme of mentorship, because obviously it it goes back to the beginning of literature with the Odyssey. And I know that must have been a book very much on your mind as as you were writing this.
1: All great stories are the stories of the journey home. And um, this was a circle made, and then coming back home again, and you're coming home to your heart in some ways. You're coming home to an, illum- an illumination that's really you. You're, that's the process of self-discovery that's part, part of the journey. And Borges was obsessed with Homer. I love, in fact, my favorite line in the book is where Borges says, Yes, uh, America is one of the one of the few places in the world where Homer has a last name. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, he was obsessed with Homer. He was obsessed with, um, of course, Cervantes. And one of the books, favorite book of my life, is the great Cervantes Don Quixote. And Borges was constantly quoting him. And so I also have a parallel to that going on. It's like Sancho and Panza.
0: Oh, no, that's another one of the motifs. But talk a little bit about mentorship. Because, I mean, I think that one of the things I observed in the book, which Mm -hmm. I I came away with just thinking was remarkable – is the encounter becomes a metaphor for how the novelist holds the reader's hand. Let me elaborate here. In many ways, just as Jay, scare quotes Jay, our protagonist, our narrator, is driving blind Borges, the seer, all over the Scottish Highlands, Borges asks of him, Jay, to describe what he sees. And so Jay describes in as much detail and with as much vividness as possible these these things and places that Borges can't see. Borges himself is bringing this vast, nearly infinite subjectivity to this experience but in many ways, that's exactly what a novelist slash writer does with his or her reader, which is, says, you know, I'm going to take you on this journey. You're going to see the world through my eyes, and you're going to bring your own psych- subjectivity to that experience, and that conjoining is going to make something new.
1: Yeah, that's that's, ex- that's well put, and That's exactly what I was trying to do. I mean, Alistair was teaching me um, – to think freshly about my own writing, to take it seriously, to look at it again. Alistair sat next to me at the desk. This really happened just as he sat with Robert Graves. So there's a sense of lineage going on here. Graves, Alistair Reed, me, Alistair and Borges. There was a mentorship there. Alistair became a kind of mini Borges. I mean, some people said to me, but you only ever knew Borges for one week. How could you have had such an impression on that He changed your life. I said, well, I had Alistair for 50 years. He was never more than a phone call away. And until he died at 90, he and I never didn't go a week without talking. And we traveled together. We lived together. We lived together for a winter and spring in Puerto Rico. We lived together often in the Dominican Republic where Alistair had a house." Uh, we traveled together constantly. He was frequently at my house in St. Andrews. And for 50 years, there was rarely a poem or a novel or a biography that I didn't send to him in manuscript. And he would correct it. He did this till three or four years ago when he died. So I, I was lucky to have Alstra my whole life. But he had a Borgesian viewpoint. He had absorbed Borgesian into his bloodstream. And so I got Borges through Alistair. Mm-hmm. That's where how I know Borges so well. Not because of Borges, but yeah, I just had a brief personal encounter with him. Then I had the long encounter with reading him and and the long encounter with Borges transmogrified or transmuted through Alistair Reed's imagination. But, 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 that's,
0: but that's where we get into very Borgesian territory, which is that the memory of Borges mm-hmm the attempt at recalling what Borges said infuses the reading of Borges. Mm -hmm. And then as you change and think of these things, that in turn transmutes the rereading of Borges ad infinitum. There's another interesting motif or sort of a sub motif running through this idea of mentorship, which is the near slaying of either the apprentice by the mentor or vice versa. There's that incredible, incredible anecdote that Reed tells of him having an affair with one of Graves' mistresses. Mm -hmm. And then Graves, in retaliation, wings an axe at him, Mm -hmm. basically exiling him from his apprenticeship. Reed essentially flees Graves. But comically and Also, at times, very suspensefully, Jay nearly unwittingly kills Borges or gets Borges dead. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering what you were working with regard to that angle.
1: Oh, I was was reading at the time some Freud, and I was thinking about how you have to kill the father to become the father yourself. And, and how literature, I mean, I was also reading Harold Bloom, and I was thinking about, about all of these m- motifs of the difficulty of how do you deal with your mentors. And uh, I had many teachers that in, in college that I felt I don't want to kill them by succeeding as a writer in some ways. I felt that was dangerous. And with Alistair Rage, there was always a, an element of danger between the two of us. It was never not there, even to the very end. I was, a, I was frightened of Alistair. Always was frightened of Alistair, because he had a, a terrible temper, and I wouldn't have been surprised if he threw an axe at my head at some points, just the way Graves had thrown an axe at his head and just missed him. This is a true story. And just the way Saul throws his spear at David. Exactly. It's it's mythic, isn't it? It's so? very mythic. It's mythic. and um, And this was... Uh, so vivid in my memory, one of the most vivid moments was driving Borges up into the Cairngorm mountains and my old car really straining up one hill and, and then suddenly rain starts coming and lightning and thunder and Borges said, let me out, let me out. I want to experience this, 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 this wonderful weather. He just leaps out of the car <laughs> and uh, I, I'm still working with the brake trying to get the stop on the hillside. Borges is running. The last thing I could hear him through the window was, was, was shouting King Lear, you know, blow winds and crack your cheeks. And I'm thinking, Oh Christ, I'm stuck. This, this is madness. And so it took me forever to get the car stabilized on the hillside. I look up and there's no Borges. I thought, okay, what the hell? Where is he? I jump out. I can't say, I yell Borges, Borges, nothing. I rush up the road. He's got to be here. And I look and he's fallen not down a scree. And he slipped down the screen and he's lying there face down, his cane ahead of him, and uh, he wasn't moving. And and I thought, oh, my God, I've killed Borges. <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, he wasn't dead. He just had, had knocked himself for a loop. And I got him back into the car and took him to a local cottage hospital where they did a little one stitch in his forehead and so forth. But then again, for example, uh, there was a doctor there. And Borges got into this amazing conversation with the doctor, as he did with everybody. There's a famous story, Dr. Brody's report by Borges. So I called her Dr. Brody and had had Borges talk about his story. So again, this is always what's going on. I'm using Borges' fiction, implanting it in my storytelling, which I will call fiction or autofiction.
0: But that brings up yet another motif, which is the motif of reenactment. So there's Borges Mm -hmm. in... An actual storm, wandering into an actual storm, unwittingly headed toward a fall down a scree, reenacting Lear right. and nearly killing himself. But reenactment, it seems to me, in Borges and Me, also plays a very central role in terms of, gosh, whether it's personal development, whether it's… uh the history and fate of nations talk a little bit about reenactment in the the book
1: well you know all as borges said to me all literature is simply reenactment with a twist Mm -hmm. we're all just reenacting that's all we do there's no originality we are re we're all reenactors and then um this became very vivid to me when borges the main thing he wanted to see was the battlefield of culloden Mm -hmm. so we drove there And we get to the battlefield of Culloden, and it was more or less deserted, it seemed, and Borges goes rushing out into the field, and he's blind, he's rushing with his cane up in the air, and suddenly there's the sound of bagpipes, and there's a group of reenactors of the old Bonnie Prince Charlie war between the Scots and the English and Borges pretends in his own mind that he's actually on the battlefield of Culloden and Bonnie Prince Charlie is there. And he's re, and, and re, he reenacted. One guy came over and said, is your old man crazy? <laughs> <laughs> he said, no, he's not my old man. So Borges was convinced that he was actually sinking f- in, from reality into history. And I thought, well, this is perfect for Borges because reenactment is what his work is about it's what all creativity is about and i thought it was a perfect metaphor and symbol to use in my book at that moment
0: and yet i think that there's a downwind idea of that which is that because clearly you jay and the character jay you're pacifists Mm -hmm. if one could almost effectively reenact war or if one could let's say do the most vivid possible rereading of, say, the first great Western epic of war, which is the Iliad, Mm -hmm. then perhaps there would be no war.
1: Yeah, maybe that's it. I mean, I was obsessed with war. Borges was obsessed with war. Borges had a very silly romantic idea of war. But yours was not. Mine was not. Uh, In many ways, the big clash I had with Borges was I felt he was a silly romantic about war. And he had this endless allusion to some ancestor of his who was the hero of of some great Argentinian battle, right? And so he would talk about war in a very dramatic way. And he himself, of course, was weak, blind, never could have been in a war. And of course, he was in a battle with Perón himself. Perón had arrested his mother, his cousin, his uncle, and imprisoned them at one point. And he, he had a constant struggle with Perón. And so Borges... politics where I thought, at the time, I I thought maybe I was simplistic, but I thought he was very confused about this stuff. And I had no illusions or confusions. I hated the Vietnam War. I was only in Scotland because of the Vietnam War. I was running from the draft. I didn't feel I could go back to the U.S. I felt in exile in Scotland. And the Vietnam War, these letters kept pouring in from my three friends in Vietnam. So I had this vivid sense that this is going on. I could at any moment be conscripted, be sent to the jungles of Vietnam and killed there. And I thought this was a stupid immoral war. It didn't didn't take um, much brilliance to look at the Vietnam War and say that it was a cruel, stupid idea.
0: But were you at the time, I mean, you you mentioned the three uncles in, is it the Salerno battle? Yes. There's this sense of, Jay's own conflict, which is that World War II was a justifiable war, removing the scourge of Hitler, but Vietnam wasn't. I, 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 have, to, I have to pause though for a second. And, and with regard to this idea of reenactment, Alistair at the end of the book says something interesting, which, which is that he says literature will have to change after Borges. Mm-hmm. So, so, what did you mean by that when you set that idea over against this idea of reenactment?
1: I think what Alistair meant and what I meant was that realistic literature of a certain kind has to change. We can no longer make this easy separation between fact and fiction. We have to understand that, uh, that as soon as you enter language, you're entering fiction. That every time you construct a scene, you're inventing the scene. Because, I mean, with Borges, I mean, I learned so much, as you alluded earlier to, about writing. He said to me, you will be my eyes. And so that's one of the, Unfolding motifs in the book is
0: that's 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 mentorship. That's well, mentorship absolutely. and an apprenticeship,
1: hundred percent. And also, I'm learning how to become more particular and also more fictive. You see, um, I, rem- I remember this, the one thing I remember so vividly was when we started out. Bork, I said, "You're strangely silent. You're supposed to be my eyes. What are you seeing?" I said, "Okay, there's the sea. Uh, there's some clouds. <laughs> I see some birds, and there's some flowers by the road." He said, "And you want to be a poet." He said, this will not do. I will not sit in this car with you, Giuseppe, talking like that. Tell me, are they cirrus clouds? Are they cumulus clouds? Birds? You say birds. Are they, are they gannets? High gannets? Are we looking at herring gulls? What are we seeing? Flower. Who sees a flower? What are you seeing? Are you seeing a daffodil or rhododendron? Um, he said, if you can't learn the particular particulars of the world and populate your description with this kind of specificity, you're not really a writer. So I, I was wakened up by that. And so I really worked from then on to try and say, okay, don't don't just see green. Say moss green. Look at everything with a kind of real intensity. Borges had this astonishing way of looking at the world with a vividness. It was almost electric and it became unreal and became fictive. So, so, and, and I tell the story, which Borges told me and never forgot it, how he had been in Israel the year before and he loved Israel. And he remembered walking into uh, a Hebrew language bookstore and said, where's the fiction? And they said, oh, we don't have any fiction section in, in, a, in a Hebrew. We have only two kinds of writing. Uh, and one kind is called narrative. And that includes fiction and nonfiction storytelling. Because we believe there's only narrative. The word in Hebrew is siporet. And that has always been a kind of vivid moment in my mind. And I think of, you know, once you get into the realm of storytelling you're absorbing fact. Facts on, on their own are said dead things. They, they're sort of meaningless. And they only become alive when they're put into a relationship with other facts, when you've got a context, when you've got an evolving... When, once narrative gets involved... But as soon as narrative gets involved, you're lifting off from the ground of reality. But you know that we're lifting off every day from the ground of reality. Who can remember what happened yesterday and tell it accurately?
0: Oh, this is, this is to me... This is why I absolutely loved um the Rachel Cusk's outline trilogy because mm-hmm. as powerfully as any uh series of of books that I've read in the last I don't know 5 to 10 years
1: mm-hmm.
0: it just shows how narrative is the human atmosphere we 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 constantly swim through other people's narratives as we move through the world which which brings me to another very interesting quote one of my favorite lines in the book that I'd love you to talk about, which is when Borges is talking about 1001 Arabian Nights, he asks Jay, have you read this yet? Jay says, no, and Borges says, no. you have to read it. He's like, he says something to the effect of, otherwise you're essentially too innocent. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering what you meant by that, or what you think Borges meant by that.
1: Yeah, he said to me, um, first of all, he said, um, he said, it's the greatest work ever written. They were the Arabian Nights. And I said, first, I said, I, said, I haven't read a book. I said, who, who wrote the Arabian Nights? He said, who wrote it? I did. <laughs> I said, you wrote the Arabian Nights? He said, yes. He said, it's a classic. I wrote all the classics. He said, it so annoys my contemporaries. And uh, then he said, um, you know, it's the model for storytelling, Scheherazade. And he said, this is the world we all Want to live in and ideally do live in in where tell me a story once upon a time, and that 's what keeps us awake and, and it's what keeps us alive it's what keeps she- here alive so it was kind of, we, we really had a lot he talked about a thousand and one nights again and again and again you mentioned it earlier, but one of the other just
0: right up front motifs is Don Quixote and mm-hmm. sancho, and how is that entering your composition, your thought? When is Jay Sancho, and when is Borges Don Quixote, and vice versa?
1: Well, we kept switching roles, but he was certainly Don Quixote most of the time. He was the valiant knight, uh, questing and tilting at windmills. I put this into the book because it occurred to me right when I started remembering things that I was so annoyed when we set off on our journey, he said, This is your car, Rocinante. And he took his cane and he slapped my hood and he put a dent in my car. And I thought, What on earth? And I said, What's who's Rocinante? He said, The lazy horse of Don Quixote. And um he said, And so I'm I'm the knight and you're and I said, Does that make me Sancho Panza? And of course, uh, it, it did. And Sancho Panza is always coming up with these astonishingly s- s- silly truisms and st- strange statements. Sancho Panza was the kind of original version of Yogi Berra, and so, um, and so the, and I, so I was felt often that I was put in the role of the innocent Sancho. And Borges also sort of created my innocence. And he kept referring to my innocence because he did ask me about my relationships with women. And I said, I, I've never had any any girlfriend yet in my life. He said, but you would like to. I said, very much I'd like to. I have, I'm very eager to consummate a relationship. I want to see what this is going to be like. He said, so you're a 22-year-old virgin. He said, this is wonderful. I love this. And uh, we talked about that, but it, it, that kept coming up. And he said to me, even with... Uh, uh, when I told him I hadn't read A Thousand and One Nights, he said, Ah, he said, So you're a, the literary equivalent, a readerly equivalent of a virgin. Mm-hmm. He said, Anyone who hasn't, a reader who hasn't read A Thousand and One Nights, like even, or Don Quixote, is a literary virgin. So you go, you've got to break that moment, he said. You've got to move beyond that.
0: But there's also, again, this other tension between Dante's Beatrice
1: mm-hmm.
0: and. Uh, I'm I'm going to call it the Nausicaa theme, yeah. which is one of carnality. Right. And in this regard, there's a decided lack of carnality with Borges versus the, the let's call it, um, gentle and sometimes nervous carnality and lustiness of Jay in yes. the book. Talk right. about that a little well, bit.
1: Well, I had an actual young woman that I was desperately trying to get together with. She was really kind of playing with me and not really having anything to do with me.
0: Ergo, she's your Beatrice.
1: She's my Beatrice, exactly. And uh, I told Borges about my desires and my frustration when we were lying together in that bed that night in Kelly Cranky in the B&B. And uh, and he started talking to me about his love of this woman. He said, Nora Lang, her name was. She was a beautiful redheaded woman brilliant. He said, I proposed to her a hundred times and she rejected me (laughs) a hundred times. And he said, then she finally married my rival, my literary rival, Oliviero Girando.' He said, who was a fraudulent writer, (laughs) a fraudulent writer. He said, why would she pass up me, a real writer, for Girando, that fraud? He talked about uh, Nora Lang all the time, and so this, 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 is a, this runs through the book, too. Borges yearning, Borges innocence. He finally did get marriage when he was 67 years old, he told me. He married, married a woman that, again, he had known for 50 years. He said they had actually been engaged for 50 years. And finally he married her. And the marriage only lasted three years. I think it was unconsummated. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, what happened? How could it be that it only lasted three years? He said, well, we never really got to know each other.
0: What do you think is that element of? I mean, there's again, there's I think a sort of long history of purity running through the idea of being sort of almost a requisite for the muse. I mean, certainly Milton was obsessed with the idea of his heart being purified in order to receive inspiration, mm-hmm. which has countless contraries. What, what? What do you make of that?
1: Well, I think it's all about, you, know, you can't have purity without having something you're trying to purify yourself from, mm-hmm. and that's usually desire. And I think that um, at the heart of all literature is, is unrequited love, and I think it's all about trying to requite some kind of love. If you requite the love, you don't need to write the book or the poem or the story. That's really interesting. So, um, you know, I often, Borges and I did talk about Yeats and his love of Maud Gunn. And um, you know, there's Yeats. I mean, he, some of his greatest poetry came out of his unrequited love for this strange woman, Maud Gunn, who had, he rep- he proposed to her, and over and over again, was unconsummated. Last question, then: hmm.
0: What is the unrequited love at the center of this book?
1: Well, a most um. Concretely and and just literally, not figuratively. There's this woman, Bella Law. I made up the name. Who's an aggregate? Of an aggregate of th- three th- th- same at le- different at, women. At least two. At least two different women. She's. But there was one woman who was kind of her, and so uh, I was just crazy about her. And so the, the the frantic desire for her that was the literal desire in the book. But I think then that stands in for a much deeper longing which is the longing for a father figure longing for a proper mentor a longing to to find a language somehow adequate to my emotions and and the endless search for the words that are going to matter to me they're going to say that's it if i can somehow get the right word say the, f- the right flower, if I can name the right bird, if I can describe the way the waves are moving on the sea, if somehow I can find a language that's adequate to what I'm seeing and feeling, uh, then I'll no longer be a virgin. I'll be complete. Which brings us full circle
0: back to what Alistair says, which is, not yet.
1: Right. Not yet. Not yet. And Alistair was endlessly holding the carrot in front of me saying, you're not quite there yet, book after book, poem after poem. Alistair, for 50 years, said, you know, you're getting there.
0: Well, even even Borges Borges says that, I guess, when he quotes Stevenson. Yes. I mean, Borges had his own, not yet. He was like, if I could write that one line, I I would essentially die happy.
1: I know. And again, what was the line that he loved so much in Stevenson? Home is the hunter, home from the hills, and the sailor, home from the sea. That is a
0: lovely place to end. Jay Perini, thank you so much for being on the Suwane Review Podcast.
1: Thank you, Adam. I really loved it.
0: Thank you for listening to the Suwanee Review Podcast. If you like what you heard, the best way to support the Sewanee Review, America's oldest continuously published literary quarterly, is by purchasing a print and online subscription at www.thesewanireview.com. To discover what's happening at the Review, visit our website, or follow us on our Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook pages, at the Sewanee Review. Until next time, this is the Sewanee Review,
1: new since 1892.